Okay, just to clear it up, does anybody know what the film's from? Yeah, no, you knew that. You cheated. Yes, okay. The, the problem over the last few weeks is that I seem to have the, the passages that just talk about sin, but maybe God's trying to teach me something. I don't know. But if you've got a Bible, can you talk to, turn to Romans uh, chapter 7, and we're going to look at um, verses 7 uh, to 25. Romans chapter 7, verses 7 uh, to 25. What then shall we say? That the law is sin by no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would have not known sin. For I would have not known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good. In order that sin might be known to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want. But I do the very thing that I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Good grief. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Why couldn't I have a different passage? So, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making it captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of death? There should be a but in there. It just says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I serve... uh, the law of God with my mind but with my flesh I serve the law of sin Uh, we're looking at over the over these few weeks at uh, the Paul's letter to the church in Rome and there is enormous controversy that has surrounded 
Paul's uh, exact meaning of the chapter that we have just read, chapter 7. There has been a debate as to whether Paul is concerned about his own history or the history of the Jews or people in general. Now, on top of that, if it's people in general and if it's, uh, if it's him, are the descriptions of a, a before-salvation experience or an after-salvation perspective? And those are some of the simple controversies without going into the ones that are worse than that. I thought I wouldn't bring those to you this morning. It's probable that actually because of this passage that that people will argue passionately um, forever. And my aim is to, uh, if I like, not if I'm if I've done it well and served you well, is to, is to try and, and, and not go with the controversies and try and just sort of stick to the passage and see what God's saying. So let me try and simplify it um, for you. We should be clear that Paul is writing about the law. Now, how do we know that? We know that because he introduces it in chapter 2, and he closes it in chapter 7. And when we come to next week, you get something new, starting off, therefore, now, there is no condemnation. So we know that we are in the middle uh, of a discourse on the subject of the law. He's not trying to answer questions that modern people in the modern era might raise. He's writing to the church in Rome, and we have to remember, it's, therefore, it's their context. Our context are what we have added into it. So it's not, it's not to be valued, as it were, in terms of a modern era. But it's also not a personal autobiography, which people say. Although what he does do is that he uses himself time and time of again as an example. So what he does do, it's like, it's like uh, uh, me listening to Max Prophecy this morning and then coming up and explaining, yes, I can see that prophecy and I can see it because here am I going through those same things. So that's what Paul does. He uses himself as an example. Now, Paul then is describing the effects of the law. And his main theme here is to say that the, the law enables us to see sin as exactly for what it is. That's all. That's our major theme. So let's get into it because I'd like to suggest to you that Paul likes talking about sin and the law. He seems to uh, like doing that a lot. And by the time we get to verse 7, his argument has built from earlier. So he starts off and he says, what then shall we say? Paul uses the statement before, he's used it twice before, and what I've said to you before is this, when you get a, what shall we say, the idea is that you and I are, and, the, and the reader is supposed to stop and to think and consider. What shall we say then? Okay, think about it. Give this some time. Give this some thought. Don't rush ahead. Think about it. What shall we say then? And that's what we're supposed to do there. And, and what he then says is that the law is sin. Now he thinks, because he's writing to Rome, that this is what the people think in Rome. That, that they may think that the law is evil. That it is 
uh, is the law sin? He answers this. He says, if you look at it, he says, by no means, certainly not. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. Now that throws up all sorts of statements about sin and the law and how do we understand that and how do people that don't know the law understand sin. So Paul doesn't mean that people without the law do not sin. Of course they do. Of course they do. All people have an idea of right and wrong. We know that what it does is that it it changes and varies hugely. You'll find a moral code... Uh, that will vary from your nice neighbour that always bakes you a cake and pops it round to you to the person that has robbed you and the thief. Both of those people from two extremes actually have a moral code. You could talk to both of those people and both of them would tell you what is right and what is wrong but from their perspective. People who do not know the law will know whether something is wrong but it will be according to their own standards. Because people without the law do not see that their wrongdoing is actually against God. And that's what we are supposed to understand, that our sin is against God. And they don't think that. They just think we've done wrong here. No, we have sinned against God. And there's a huge difference, isn't there, between breaking a moral code and a sin against God. You see, if my sin is against, uh, if something that I've done wrong, I, I either can ignore that or I can do something about it. But if it's against God, it's bigger because it means that I am in deep trouble because my sin is against God, and I need to find out how, therefore, that sin is dealt with in terms of God. You see, the law convicts me of my sin, and then what it does is it leads me to a saviour who will remove my guilt, who will remove my guilt by forgiving me, and sets me completely free from the consequences of sin. The problem is that in the world is that people do sin and live with the consequences of it, live with the guilt with it. Because we sin against God, it means that we can know freedom from it. And that's the difference. Well, I think that's quite exciting. But there you go. Paul uses an example, which I don't want to go very far with it. He uses the example of covetedness. Um, so we all, uh, we all want something that somebody else has got, don't we? And he just uses an example, the 10th commandment, just to show how it works. And what he's going for, you see, he's saying, look, look the, Lord show, the, the law shows him that coveting was wrong, that his coveting was wrong. It showed him that that was sin and therefore it moved him towards, I need somebody to help me and save me from my sin. So Paul then goes on and describes the effect of this sin on his life. And in verse 8 he says, but sin seizing an opportunity. It's a, it's a, a vigorous term, isn't it? Because you wouldn't think of of sin seizing an opportunity. You wouldn't think of it in those sort of terms. But it's an incredible description of what happens in our lives. The Greek term is a military term, and it describes an army seizing an opportunity because of a seen and known weakness. Because if you're strong, 
You're not going to sin, aren't you? Of course not. You have to nod. Okay, no, shake. Okay, of course you're not. What, what happens is that sin, it, it, it sort of makes the most of seen and known weaknesses. That's how it works, guys. It doesn't go for you. you. You don't sin with your strong bits. You sin with your weak bits, don't you? Have you got that? Isn't it? That's how it works. And then verse 8, it goes on. But sin, hear this, seizing an opportunity, nasty thing that it is, through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. And again, what happens is that Paul's using the illustration of covetousness and, but we miss the Greek and the true um, definition of what's going on. So you can imagine that, that, that sin has got hold of your weakness and it's, it's stretching it and expanding it. Because it means here, that means the covetous desires, if you took it back to the original, it means that when we sin, there is a pleasure that comes with it and a stubbornness that takes over. So that's how it works. So he's saying, look, here's what happened. Covetedness, not only did it, did it take over me, not only did it seize an opportunity, but I actually quite like it and I don't want to be rescued from it. I'm stubborn about that. Please. And I know that. Don't you? Isn't that the right when you and I sin? Somebody comes to talk to you about it? Watch out. Isn't that true? Because there is a sense of enjoyment about it and a stubbornness that's come with it. So the point being that we may not feel an urge to sin when we, uh, when we do, but it seizes the opportunity, it advances it out, and we don't want anybody to point that out to us. Recognize that? Yeah, that's how it works, isn't it? And Paul's explaining this to the, to the church in Rome and saying, just watch it. Just watch yourself. Just watch what comes up. That's all that he's doing. Then what Paul does is he makes it very personal. He uses himself as an illustration. In verse 9 he says, I uh, was once alive apart from the law. Meaning that we can blame that terrible thing called sin out there and not ourselves. And, and uh, And he's trying to Put that to death a little bit. Look what sin did. No, it's me. I sin. It, it does help if you don't if you connect those dots. It isn't the, you know, the, the look what sin did in me. No, I sinned. I was once alive apart from the law. I was sinning. It was me. It was me that sinned. And what does that mean? Uh, alive apart from the law. Well, before you become a Christian, there are actually no reference points. Um, one commentator says this, you can find happy pagans, can't you? It's true, you can, because you know, sins, uh, you only have to watch these, um, the, these sort of reality shows that appear um, on most television programs on most nights of the week to see that actually you can have happy pagans uh, butchering each other uh, in sometimes confined spaces, but we're happy about it. We like it. And, and sometimes what you can find is that, that even if you carry on sitting, there's no guilt and conscience with what happens. So you, you sometimes see things and you go, is this just going from bad to worse? But they, there is a sense in which in, when, you, when you are sinning, you don't care. You're, you, you are actually having fun. I like this freedom to break the rules. 
It isn't it good to break the rules? And you can see that in life, in society, that what happens is that there is a fun in breaking the rules. Try that. We drove through Wrexham last night. And we drove through early. It was ridiculous. I've never seen so many things that were going on on the road. It was almost as if it's Saturday night. It's explosion night. Let's kill everybody we can here. And in the process of it, let's have fun. I've never seen anything. What was happening here? And it is like that, that you have no guilt or conscience. You just carry on here. You've heard me say this before. I'm going to say it again. If it appears as a ringtone, I'll chase you. Sin, for a lot of people, is fun. It literally is. And, when you, and that's why when you become a Christian, you say to people, why don't you become a Christian? And they go, no, because what are you doing? You are taking my fun away from me. Which is the perception, isn't it? Oh no, you have become holy and righteous. And, that's, and actually, I was having fun. Now you want me to behave like this. That's not fun. And you see that in the way that it works. Where's my note? Sin is fun. Then what happens is that you become a Christian. Now the problem with becoming a Christian is that what, when you were having fun before, now you've become a Christian, suddenly, as it says here, I'm alive apart from the law that sin springs to life. Or, and it suddenly it, it becomes a reference point for you. Because if, what, if you don't know you're sinning, somebody else will tell you that you are. And it becomes alive to you. And Paul is describing that. He's saying, what happened with the law and what happened with me realizing it is suddenly I knew what I was doing wrong. And if I didn't know what I was doing wrong, somebody told me what I was doing wrong. And it, it became, and, and I'm alive now apart from the law. You see, I don't know if you've gathered this yet. Please hear this. Salvation is more than Jesus just loving you. It's more than Jesus stroking the back of your head and saying, wonderful, love, love you, love you too, no love you more. It's more than that. No love you ten, no I love you twenty, thank you Jesus. It's, it's, we can do that. It's actually, uh, one of it is realisation that your and my personal sin took him to the cross. That I nailed him there. It isn't, oh, Jesus loves me. No, I cost him his very life. My sin cost him his very life. Whose sin do you think nailed him to the cross? Oh, theirs. No, yours. The cross is not just about his love, it's about also the sin that nailed him to the cross. And we have to have a joint perspective to understand the great wonder of salvation, that suddenly my sin is dealt with by a loving saviour. Hallelujah. It helps to know both. So then Paul gets lost on a little bit of more imagery. He just does this. Paul, so verse 11 For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, it killed me. So, if you remember, going back again, sin is a military, using a military term, is, uh, here it goes, goes beyond the attack and makes a base of operations in you. 
Now, I think if I explained to you that that was what sin would do, you'd sort of go, ooh, don't, 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 please, don't let, you know, I don't want. But actually, that's what happens. Sin makes a base of operation. My sin, remember, Paul is personal, is now expanding its work in me and gaining ground. That's exactly how it works. It's gaining ground in me. That's the way that Paul is described. Sin is seizing an opportunity through it's deceiving me. Personal is but how does sin do that? How does sin deceive you? How do you do that? Well, it makes lies truth and it convinces me of that. That's how it works. You believe the wrong thing. No, I will not have that. No, this isn't the way out. How many of us have said that? But if you listen to Genesis chapter 3, it says, The Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me. Therefore, I ate. Please hear this. My sin, your sin, it deceives us. It tells us, A pack of lies. That's how it does. It tells you that there's no way out from this. There's no freedom in this. You can't this is the way that you are for the rest of your life, etc. 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 It it gives you a bunch of lies and convinces you that the lies are truth. You can always tell that because you always find that people try and find an answer somewhere. So they go over to here to Tim and say, I'm sinning, Tim. And Tim goes, yes, you are. You go, not the right answer. Okay, Jonathan, I'm sinning. And Jonathan Jonathan goes, yes, you are. And he goes, rats, I'm fine. I'm over here to Rachel. Rachel, and I was like, Rachel, I'm sinning. And she goes, I love you, Nigel. Thank you. And I go, that's exactly the answer. I, I love Rachel, hate Jonathan. And we do that. We just try and find somebody who will say the right thing of us because, because we won't face up the fact that, that it's a lie. It really is a lie. So let's carry on. What does that look like? The Greek word for deceived is very powerful. It means this. It means to play upon when you are vulnerable. It means to mock. It means to be led away. It means to, to press down, to oppress to throw down, physically throw down, to be enticed, to be falsely persuaded or to err. Now, if I said to you that was what was going to happen to you, you'd go, I would never let that happen to you, me. But actually, don't we? Don't we do that? Aren't we played on when we're vulnerable? And that's why... It takes the life out of you when you sin. And that's why Paul says, and through it, what did it do? It killed me. That's his description of it. Isn't that powerful? my, My sin saps the life out of me. That's what it does. So what is Paul's view of the life? And I think I ought to get the guy to put a jumper on. I think that would help him. Because it's just causing the ladies to lust in the, in the thing. And if you didn't know that, that's the law pointing it out to you, so now you have to choose not to. <laughs> if the, it, I did put a stumbling block in front of my... Bo- yes, I'll carry on. Okay. 
So verse 12, Paul's view of the law. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. This introduces the sort of conclusion to this part of Paul's train of thought. The law is God's law. It takes its character from him. Therefore, it's holy, righteous and good. Its standards are God's standards. And here's the problem. It does nothing to help you. It just identifies what is right and what is wrong. And it leaves you alone. So even if we identify our own sin, and what we do is that we look at the law as the ideal way to live, we're left without a power to live it. And that's the key point that Paul wants us to know. The law is holy, and its commandment is holy, it's righteous and good. Yeah, I know that. But how does that help me? I'm just, I I know that standard. Don't you know that sometimes? You have a standard over here. You know what you are like and you think, how on earth do I reach that? Haven't you ever thought that? Don't you ever look sometimes and do this? I look at sometimes like this. I look at people. This This is my sin. So what I do is that I look around and I go, ah, here's this person, Derek. And, I, and what I do, and I go, look at Derek. Derek is holy, what does it say, righteous and good. And I look at him and I, and I think, how on earth do I ever get to be like Derek? And then I go, I'll never be like Derek. I could never be like Derek. And I get all sorts of, you know, I'll never be like this. And I think, how, how, and that's what the law does. That's what Paul is saying about the law. And he and that's why is a key point. The key point is I can see where I go. I can see that it's right. I can see that it's this, but who will help me? That's why you get next verse, Romans chapter 8, that goes on and goes, this is what helps you. Therefore, now there is no condemnation. That's for next week. So that next week comes the help. This week is the battering. Next week is the help. So you should all be there next week. But there is a glimmer of hope at the end of this one. Yay! So Paul, what he does is that he advances his argument. Um, Let's change it. Verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. The law is good, and and, uh, if the law is good, uh, can it cause my death? And immediately he rejects the idea. Right through this passage, he says, no, sin's, sin, sin's the vil- villain. I'm the villain, not the law. Uh, sin that brings me to death is not the law. And he explains that. He goes, it was sin producing death in, in me, though it was good, in order that sin might be shown to, to be sin. The law is given in order that sin might be seen for exactly what it is. And without the law, we would not see sin for the evil that it is and the depth that it goes and the nature that I have. That's the point. Without the law, we would not see sin, in fact, either as rebellion against God. We just see it as a set of rules. No, it's rebellion against God. That's why previously we can see, I am rebelling, therefore, against the holy, righteous and good God. 
And because of that, I cannot save myself. And the conclusion, therefore, must be that if God is here and if I am here, I need somebody that will, what, save me. That's the conclusion. And that's the way that the Lord does it. You stand there and go, if God's good and righteous and holy, and if I am sinful, boy, I need rescuing. And you look and you go, where is the rescuer? That's what happens. Fantastic. We get in there. And you, it does that for you. I need, therefore, saving. Here's a side issue. Paul doesn't blame anybody for his sin. He describes himself as, I love this, as sinful beyond measure. That's his assessment of himself. And it's interesting in regard to sin, because we can grade it, can't we? And what you wouldn't do is you wouldn't grade Paul like this, would you? Because what we do is we grade sin. So we go, going back to Derek, again, what we do is that we say, Derek is a 35% sinner. 65% holy, 35% sinner. That's it. But Mikael <laughs> means that he's from India and a pagan nation. He's 75% sinful and 25% righteous, good, and holy. We do that. Paul says, no, all Malaysians. The Malaysians are better than the Indians as well. But all... <laughs> But just to clear this up, Mikhail, so that you will know in com- compared to these Malaysian proud and arrogant people, <laughs> that what, what happens is that Paul says, no, I am sinful beyond measure. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It isn't that mine's shorter or his is larger. Hallelujah, Mikhail. It means that all our sin is beyond measure. Get hold of it. Because why is that important? Because then you realize what a wonderful saviour you have. That's the point. The point is that. And if you go, no, see, if we do that, that means that Derek is only 35% saved. And Mikael, 75%. Paul says, no, I am sinful beyond measure because my salvation is full and I've received it all. That's the point. I like it. So then Paul does, I'm just beginning to cover up his chest now, so you're all right. So Paul does not understand himself. Have you ever done this? I don't understand myself sometimes. So Paul explains his perplexity. He goes, how about this one? For I do not understand my own actions. What? (laughs) What does that mean? The hand's going, come back. It sort of is it, it works on its own. I don't, what does that do? I cannot stop the finger going up my nose. Now, what is that? <laughs> For I do not do what I want, but the, but the thing that I do, I hate. No, I've just jumped ahead on time. I've gone the spiritual we do spiritual law. No, I've jumped ahead. Let me go back. Sorry, spiritual law. No, sorry, verse 40. Forget that. I'll come back to that in a minute. <laughs> Because that's quite interesting. It's quite funny. Now, let's just forget that. Verse 14. Uh, verse 14. Spiritual law. Do it quickly. He, describes, he says, you know. So, and what he's doing with that, he's trying to say, look, you know these things, don't you? And it's really quite funny because you go to people and you go, you know about sin. They go, no. 
you just spiritual rubbish lot. Of course you do. Paul's eye going, he's going, you know about sin. And the person will go, yes. So don't be so pious. What's up with you? Come on. You know about all these things, don't you? Yes, that's the point. That's what you're supposed to say in verse 14. Then the expression points out that the, uh, not that the law... Um, he describes what, what Paul feels in terms of this, because he says that he's sold under sin. What does that mean? He's, he says he's a slave to sin. It means that sin has control over him. That's what slavery does to you. It means that you have a master. It means that sin has control over him, and he feels sin's control. And the passive means that Paul has been carried off by sin, which is literally the picture of slavery, isn't it? I like this, John Calvin. Oh, too like Calvin. The rest of you are all Arminians and won't go to heaven. But John Calvin, in his commentary, said this. He talks about people being addicted to sin. And it's the same word, addicted to sin. And he tells his readers that Jesus didn't just bear... He said, you need to know that you are addicted to sin because Jesus didn't just bear our sin. He breaks the power of it. And that is very, very important to know the freedom that comes with the cross. Because what we do, Jesus bore my sin. Oh, that's nice. No, he broke the power of sin on the cross. Now back to the perplexity. The thing about, I know, I don't, I pick, you know, with that one. Remember that Jesus has just described himself, sorry, no, he hasn't. Paul has just described himself as a slave and said the slave does what he's, to- and he's doing this because a slave does what he's told to do. Isn't that true? And now what he, he, see, he seems to say, or where he seems to lead, is that he also hates what he's done. And what he's, what he's lost into here is that he's lost into uh, trying to describe to his listeners that sin is very powerful, sin is very manipulative, but it can leave you with a sense of self-hate. That's what happens. And I know that through, through years of dealing with pastoral issues that often you can get an issue of forgiveness and they've understood that issue but boy have they do they personally hate the consequences of what they've gone on and and this is what Paul is describing here I don't understand my own actions I I do not I do not do what I want to do but I do the very thing that I hate isn't that sometimes something that goes on in our heads you think boy you know It just, why? And it leaves you like that. Like that. He even agrees with the law. If you look at verse 16, he knows it's good, but he seems to constantly get caught out by it. He says he continually and repeatedly sins, and the suggestion is that it's the same thing. Isn't that true? The suggestion here, we'll look for, I, I do not do what I want to do, but I do the thing that I hate. I do the what? The thing. Now there's one thing, isn't there, that you and I know that we repeatedly do. Because we can deal with that if you want to. Because you know when it repeated, because you come round to it over and over again. 
And that's what God does, doesn't he? God brings you round in a circle all the time again to say, I want to deal with this particular issue with you. And you go, I feel like I'm here again. And it's right, that's what he's done. I f- it's that one thing. Familiar? The reason that it's familiar? God wants to deal with it in you. It's just simple. It's worth asking the question, if he comes round again, what haven't I dealt with properly? It's not, it's not oh, flipping heck. We've been here before, haven't we, Tim and Rachel? I've been here before. No, you've been there before and God's brought you back again because you've got things to deal with before him. That's what Paul is coming through. Verse 18 to 20, you'll be joyful about this, um, is a repeat of verses 14 to 17. But I'm not going to go over it, but I'm going to just say, why does he repeat it? He repeats it because there's a deliverance for you to receive. And secondly, he, he, he has a moment in verse 18. Now, we all have moments, don't we? No, you never have moments. I can see that. You are such good people. Because he goes, verse 18, For I know that nothing good dwells in me. What we're going to do now, guys, is that we're going to sin and we're going to plummet ourselves into self-pity. It's what we do, isn't it? Here's Paul, and he's writing to these people. I know what will help these people. Nothing dwells in me. Nothing. And, he's get, and you go, no, I've never done that. <laughs> Liars. You haven't done it to me, but I bet you have. Nothing dwells in me. Of course, this is not true. It's a lie again. No, it's not true. Christ dwells in him. Is Christ not good? But what we have to see is the effect of sin on our minds. It leads us to being irrational, unreasonable and unstable. That's the purpose. The purpose is to rock your boat. That's the purpose. The purpose is to make life stormy for you. That's the idea of the devil. The fellow with the big funny horns and the tail. The, that's what he's, he's, he's after you. And he wants to make you like this. Where he wants to get you is utterly rendered useless and out of action. How does he do that? There's nothing good for you to offer. Get out of here. Now, I don't know whether he's Paul using it as an illustration because he's a bit rocky if he is. But don't don't you see that we need to deal with that? You know, we need to know when I'm saying that, my perception is wrong. You need to have some people around you that will speak the truth in love to you and just speak those things. But okay, let's move off the desperate bit. Because Paul actually, what is the real man? The real man is portrayed for us in verse 21. Uh, He says, evil lies close at hand. Surely that's true for us all. Isn't that just reality? Isn't, isn't that where we live? Evil lies close at hand. 1 Peter 5 verse 1, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Where's your advers- adversary? The devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Isn't that where we live? Where do you live? Oh, I live in the holy conservatory. Come on. Now you live in the real world. Evil lies close at hand. Don't we all love God and want to serve him and put him first? Wasn't that what the worship was this morning? 
Here he is. Evil lies close at hand. Verse 22. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Isn't that just the way it is? Evil lies close at hand. But I love God. Isn't this just the real Paul, the man like me, you and I? But let's not put him on a pedestal. Let's not make him Saint Paul. This is the man who delights in God and yet so readily does the sin he hates. Isn't that just like you and I? Now, if that's like you and I, doesn't that mean there's hope? I just think, yeah, there's hope. There's hope for me when I see this. I like this. But uh, verse 23, But I see my members, uh, another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Doesn't he like me? Doesn't he like? Where does that work? It works quite simply. Where do, what are our members? Our members, are our eyes and our ears and our mouth and our nose and our hands and our feet. You know, you have to you have to walk into sin. You have to touch it. You have to say it. You have to listen to it. Let's get those things wrong. But I see my members. Another war lady. Where does that start? It starts in your mind, and then it moves into action. And there you get. And there he gets into verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? What are we all good at? We're all good at wallowing in our own sin. Wallowing. That's, that's the, the Christian um, gift, isn't it? I believe. Wallowing. In fact, you know, I think we ought to begin our worship with mud, mud, <laughs> glorious mud. Nothing quite like it. For what? Soothing the blood. And we, we ought to, because actually, we, we, isn't this you and I? Isn't this like we are a oh, wretched man that I am? You know, I, I think this is just honesty and openness. And he's trying to identify with the, the Romans. So this is the same guy that we'll, we'll write in a minute. Wretched man that I am, no, in all these things we're more than conquerors through him who loved us, for I am convinced that neither death nor life. And you go, what changed? No, that's just the way it is, guys. But I think what we need to have is a bit more of Romans 8 and a bit less of Romans 7, because we spend too much time with wretched man that I am. So is there a way out to the agony? Please let there be. Verse 24, who will deliver me from the body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. The idea of the question, who will deliver me from the body of death, is to answer, nobody can. That's the idea. You're not supposed to rush into this. You're supposed to, who will deliver me? Nobody can. Oh, no. Pause. Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's a joyful shout. He has a revelation. Suddenly he sees a saviour. And he sees a saviour and he goes, Thanks be to God! He bursts out. Please, when you see the saviour, it's not like I've given you a sweet. Okay? Oh, thank you very much for the sweet. I love humbugs. No, come on! That's what Paul's doing. He's going, Who will save me? Thanks be to God! And it is literally like that. He's moved. Do you know the words, thanks be to God? Moved in his bowels. The idea is, it's a deep movement of thanks. And what do we do? It's nice. Salvation, nice. 
God, nice, really nice. No, rubbish. I've not given you an umbug. I've rescued you from sin and death, for heaven's sake. Wake up, sleeper. You should. It's not Jesus is here. It's thanks be to God from your bum. Come on. It is. If you can't be moved from a saviour, then the cash guy won't do it. Please know that. Right. Shut up. Nigel. Here he goes. Thanks. Who will deliver me from this body of death? God. How? Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Who will deliver me? A deliverer. His name is Jesus. I have a deliverer from my sin. That's the point. Therefore, these things apply. Jesus has defeated sin once and for all time. He's done it. When you believed in Jesus Christ, you didn't sort of go, okay, go to church now. No, rubbish. Please go to church. But no, you were reunited with him and you experienced a decisive deliverance from the dominion and power of sin through the cross. Thank you. Please get sin does not hold the the balance of power anymore. He took it. He defeated it. He killed it. He put it to death. He won. He had a victory on the cross. What does the Holy Spirit do? It helps you to conquer so that you are not alone. It doesn't leave you between the law and the, and, and the sin. The Holy Spirit helps you to conquer and to win so that you can say, I am more than conquerors through, who? through him who loves us. Not on my own anymore. Can defeat it, can win, can have a victory. So, Romans 6, verse 6, our old self was, well, it was adapted. No, our old self was crucified with him. It died in order that what? The body of sin might be a burden to me. No, done away with. Done away with. I like it. Verse 14, sin shall no longer have mastery over you. It's not... It's not your master anymore. Romans 8, 2. Be careful. Don't mention next week's sin. No, no, that's me. Sermon. The law of the spirit and life of Jesus Christ has set you free from the law of the sin and death. You're free from it. Live free. Please. Enjoy freedom. Why are you miserable? When you trusted Jesus... As your everything, there was a decisive, irrevocable event of deliverance that took place on the cross. That's what happened. So, when you look back in the Old Testament, and we're nearly at the end. Because Phil's thinking, what song? Okay. Um, so, when, listen, when, when, you, when you get to the Old Testament, Moses, God speaks to him about a people. And he says, I have these people... They're slaves, they're in bondage, and they're oppressed to Egypt. That's the way that it was. Exodus chapter 9, the Lord then speaks to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say, thus says the Lord God of Hebrews. That's frightening enough. And then he says, let my people go. 
What does he do? He just sort of says, do you mind? Do you mind? Can I take five? Four? Three? Two? Two? Just take two. No! Let all my people go! Right, what happens? Literally, deliver them. What for? So that they may serve me. Now, we have a new deliverer. Jesus, who sent to deliver us from the slavery of bondage and sin. He's nailed to a cross. And all the forces of evil come against him. The devil, with all that he can muster up, comes at Jesus in his utter weakness on the cross. And Jesus looks at the devil and he goes, No, let my people go! And he nails all our sins to the cross. And he gives us a complete and utter freedom from our sins. Because we are free. The Bible says, not just that we're free, we're free indeed. Let my people go. You're a new man in Christ. Freedom is available. So then Paul says, Oh, have I missed off? I think I probably... Oh, am I? Okay. So Paul says this. These are just verses to fin- finish with. What, does Paul, what can Paul say because of the cross? What can we say because of the cross? Romans 6, verse 15, 14. Sin shall no longer have mastery over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Oh, come on! <laughs> Oh, that's the way. Romans 6 verse 18. Having what's been freed from your sin, you have become a slave to righteousness. Hallelujah. Romans 6 verse 6. Our old self was crucified within him. This sin of mine is dead. Colossians 3 verse 8. You laid aside the old self with its evil practices. Colossians 3 verse 10. I've put on a new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. I am a new creation, not a patched up one, brand new. Galatians 3.27 All of you who were baptised into Christ have been clothed with Christ. I've been clothed with Christ, not sin, clothed with him. Galatians, nearly there to fill. Galatians 5.24 Get the band. Those who belong to Christ have been crucified with the flesh and its passions and desires. These passions are dead. So, when Paul says in Romans 7.25, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, he means I'm now serving a transforming work of the Spirit. I serve a new master of the Spirit. I believe in him as my deliverer. I trust in him. I I believe in the work that he did on the cross. So you ask me in conclusion, what should I do? Act in faith. What happens if I mess up again? I repent and I revel in the forgiveness and the grace of God. And I fight on. Not because I'm Christian, Christian, but because I'm a recipient of a new law, a law of grace and forgiveness and mercy, and of, it's lavish. And you are designed what to do, to be under a legal set of rules or to enjoy him forever. No, you, you were joined to him so that you could enjoy him forever, not obey rules, just enjoy Jesus. It will save you.